Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our live Tanker and IMO 2020 forum. We're recording on the morning of 17 January 2020. This is the final official live event of our two-week inaugural forum. So thank you for everyone who participated. It's been a great series so far. We are now beginning our final call here with International Seaways, the CEO Lois Zabraki and CFO Jeff Pryvor. They're here to talk with us about the tanker markets and IMO 2020 impacts. They're also coming fresh off their investor day in New York City, just hosted last Wednesday. So we also have some interesting uh, updates in terms of market rates they've disclosed. We've also seen some uh, interesting volatility in the markets. Uh, disclosures before we begin, I am long shares in international seaways. I also have positions in several ancillary crude or product tanker companies. Nothing you hear on the call today constitutes official company guidance or investment recommendations in any format. With that said, welcome Lois, welcome Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Good morning, everyone uh, from New York City. It's myself and Jeff, and uh, we're ready to go and talk tankers. All right, let's uh, let's talk tankers. So first off, uh, since we're obviously on that topic, uh, let's just talk a little bit about what you've seen in the market the last, uh, I guess, the last couple months. It's been a while since we've talked, and and any sort of, uh, I guess, surprises or, or weird impacts you've seen because of IMO 2020 or anything else in the market that's just kind of surprising or or helping dynamics. Well, you, you know, whether it was um, surprising or not, I think it was certainly something that uh, the, the, the tanker market uh, time charter equivalents have certainly built upon themselves over the last couple of months. And, you know, you, you uh, I think, have our slides, Jay, and you saw the numbers that we posted for uh, the days that are booked in Q1. And, and you're, you were looking, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, 37% of our our modern VLCCs booked at $94,000 a day. Now, today's market is somewhere around low 60s for a non-scrubber VLCC, but it looks to have stabilized, and we really think that this, you know, will continue on quite strong. And I think for us, the uh, pleasing part of the market has been where we have 20 vessels in the midsection, as we call it, the Suez Maxis, the Aframaxis, and uh, the Panamaxis really uh, just just coming on uh, very strong, and uh, the Atlantic Basin uh, crude patterns just really trading very strongly over the last couple months. Yeah, it's been a very interesting market, especially in some of those smaller ships. And of course, you're also involved in the lightering space, and we, we've seen some very interesting dynamics in that as well. Uh, it's a little little quick segue, nice and early, but do you mind just sharing a few thoughts about the lightering business and, and some of the stuff you're seeing there? No, absolutely. We uh, the, the lightering business has averaged uh, an EBITDA of just uh, around $4.2 million over the, the last three years. This is a nice niche trade for us, and, and that's on an annual investment of about half a million dollars. So that group uh, is very asset light and very uh, experience and um, intelligence heavy. And they finished up uh, December. They had they had quite a nice, strong month. So we, we're, we're happy to see that, and it definitely keeps us very close to our customers. So not only are they operating uh, out of the U.S. Gulf, bringing in um, vessels, they are also uh, lightering in, lightering out, and they're doing LNG, LPG, as well as um, operating in um, Panama on the West Coast. So it, it's a business that keeps us very close to our customers. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting one. And, you know, we've seen some, you know, temporary spikes in, in rates in a few of those contracts. So we'll see if that flows through uh, your EBITDA or not in the in the current quarter and coming quarter. But e- either way, it's been it's been definitely a nice little niche that helps you out that I don't think the market gives you credit for. Um, shifting to slide, I got your slides pulled up, of course, because we just yeah. had the investor day and it would be a shame yeah. not to have these slides up. So if anyone decides their computer, I definitely recommend it as well. Uh, you run over to slide 32 and, and you guys disclose, of course, your fourth quarter rates. So thank you for doing that. It's good to see an early indication in the market. And you also disclose your Q1 fixtures, Q1 2020 to date. And I mean, we're looking at some phenomenal rates in there. I mean, we got VLCCs at, at 94,000. Um, we, we got Suez Max is at 64,000. Uh, of course, it's just the start of the quarter, uh, but still very high numbers. One of the numbers that popped out, and I, and I think um, popped out, we'll, go, we'll say one positive and one negative. I think the positive thing that popped out is the VLCC 15 pluses, right? I was, I was right. very shocked. To see that ninety thousand, I, I would not expecting this. It's very positive. I think a negative was sort of the Affirmax rates were a lot lower than a lot of the benchmark headlines uh, we had expected. So let's talk about each one of those. So first of all, positively, okay. uh, why are the older vessels performing good? I mean, it's a good thing, but why is that happening? And then secondly, uh, what's going on in the Affirmax trade? Is it just are the benchmark rates just faulty, or is it just vessel positioning, or what's going on there? So absolutely on the 15 plus VLCC. So of course we have three, right? So it's a small amount. And naturally what you notice when the market rallies is the, the discount those vessels receive, uh, eliminates or certainly narrows greatly. So uh, to, to that extent, uh, that's a matter of positioning and timing and the, the charters being more um, open to taking vessels that are 15 years old once the market rallies. On the Affirmaxis, uh, what I would say is a couple of things. Uh, we, we, we do have a, a couple of uh, our older Affirmaxis that uh, we have been marketing and positioning for sale, and those results are in there. But also, I would say on, on the Affirmaxes, a lot of the strength that you're seeing on them, they really were very strong, like maybe the last two weeks where you saw the Caribbean was at $100,000 a day. And the Affirmax market is a very interesting market to me in that you can have pockets, right? The Med is a pocket, Cross Med, Cross Baltic is a pocket, Gulf, uh, you know, U.S. Gulf can be a pocket. And, and so you have to sort of take uh, your samples of each of those markets and, and blend it in. And I actually thought you were going to say uh, that you were impressed with the Panamax rate at $38,000 per day, uh, considering we have uh, such a preponderance of those ships. Now, the reason when you look at the spot and the TC rate, it, it gets blended down is because we have some of those vessels that are on rolling six-month charters. So when they come up, then they then they are able to take advantage of that higher rate. But I think you really see so much strength in that Panamax uh, market uh, down in down coming back and forth through the Panama Canal. And one of the things we disclosed at our investor days that we actually have an LR1 under MOA to buy. Nice. Yeah, the, the Panamax rates are certainly very good on the spot side of things. I, I apologize for not hitting all the highlights. Lois, no, uh, it's been it's been a good market. There's a lot of there's a lot of highlights there. Um, so just to clarify, because that did actually come up uh, in some you know kind of private investor chats the last day or two. Um, looking at that spot percent fixed, right? You see thirty eight thousand dollars fixed at eighteen yeah. percent, and of course that's that's phenomenal if it will continue. 
right? But when you look at the spot and time charter, all of a sudden it plummets down to 19,047%. Now, is that because you're taking a hundred, basically a hundred percent fixture at these really weak time charters, like 14, 15,000. And then you're just, it, it's just so early in the quarter that the spot hasn't overtaken that. Is that, is that why we're seeing that? You are absolutely correct, Jay. You know, every fixed day that you have for the quarter, you're blending in with uh, 20% spot. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. So, of course, you have, you know, 18% on the spot versus 100% on the time charter. So the, so the average is actually pretty skewed, right? So you got hopefully, it. hopefully we'll see that. We'll see that come up significantly. Um, one question, um, you know, as far as looking at the markets, you, 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 whenever we see these reports, we always see sequential quarter to quarter. You know, this is what we did in fourth quarter. This is what we're doing in the first quarter. And, yeah. and it's great for disclosures, right? It's good for investors to understand what the current rates are. But I think when newer folks come to the space, right, the people who haven't been in here as long, they see the quarter over quarter and maybe they lose sight of, of where we are annually. So let's just talk about that now. What's what's the difference in the market you're seeing today versus a year ago? So the 90,000 90, books, but, uh, but combined with the as Lois mentioned, it's come off a little bit in the last week. So, the you know the seventy to ninety thousand dollar range compares to thirty thousand dollars a year ago. So it's quite a pickup year on year. Yeah, I think I think that's very relevant for when you look at a market where there's a lot of new money, there's a lot of momentum going on, and then you see stuff like you saw this week, where you know you saw a few fixtures come out, and and they were great fixtures. I mean, most of them, the majority were the average. I think was seventy thousand on Wednesday. But you had a couple of fixtures that were very weak, right? There's a couple old ships that got fixed for like 40,000. And all of a sudden you see this like panic in the market and people say, well, why are rates going down? Well, you know, hey, first of all, welcome to seasonality, right? And then second of all, you know, look at year over year rates. And as you mentioned, they're up 200%. Um, so is there anything uh, is there anything else you think that's impacting the market? I mean, the, the stocks have been kind of volatile. The VLCC rates uh, came down pretty rapidly on Wednesday. Is there anything, is this just normal seasonality or is there anything else going on? I mean, it's definitely normal seasonality, and in, in today's world where information is so quick, I think that sometimes uh, the stock market can react to information that perhaps is too granular, but what I would say is we're heading into the Chinese New Year, and as, as strange as it is, these things, you know, human beings are fixing vessels. Human beings are the ones trying to secure the, the fixtures ahead of those holidays. And you have a rush and then you have an abatement and all of that is just the market breathing. A lot of this is quite normal. And I'm, I'm talking to the desk out here this morning. It looks like we're, we're, uh, coming back or not maybe coming back yet, but certainly at, at a pause point and the market is not going lower than where we are right now, which is, somewhere around low, you know, maybe 60, low 60s for a non-scrubber modern VLCC. Yeah, just to add to that, you mentioned it and Lois uh, added on seasonality. If you, if you're, uh, our listeners or readers of Seeking Out would would take a look at uh, a graph where you, you look at the rates every year from January to, to uh, December, you know, it, you have different, you have good years and bad years, but you're, you usually look at a drop off from the, uh, the beginning of the year into the second half of January. It can be from a low rate to a lower rate, or in this case, from a high very, rate. very high rate to, to less high rate, but it, but it, it is normal seasonality. Particularly this year when Chinese New Year's is, is early, it means a lot, you know, a big portion of the consumer 
customer base for tankers, you know, is 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 is, is parked for a little while, and uh, that's kind of normal. So. Yeah, well, we'll definitely see how it continues over the next uh, few days and few weeks and so on. I, you know, we, we actually did a private note a couple of days ago just looking at the seasonality and looking at, you know, the seasonality in strong markets is actually even more pronounced, right? So it's even more of a drop off. And, and we saw that from, I think it was 2002 through 2008, right? The last super cycle, it actually had seven or eight of these collapses, if you will, right? The rates were maybe a hundred thousand for VLs. And then all of a sudden, right. you know, the next week they were 30,000 and, and, but it was in the middle of this, this unprecedented super cycle and you had seven or eight of these collapses. So they're definitely not, uh, not unprecedented. And in fact, today we saw two or three new fixtures come online and they're all in the seventies or eighties. So the market still looks to be very strong. Um, what are you seeing in the other segments? So that was VLCCs. What are you seeing in Suez maxes and Afro maxes? Anything interesting there? The spot market yesterday on the Suez Maxis uh, w- was softening a bit, but it, it uh, had not crept into the, the midsize really on the Afros and Panamaxis. So uh, on, on the MR front, you're, you're seeing a, l- a little bit of uh, resilience on, on the MRs at this point. Okay, so uh, we see a little bit of softness in the Suez Maxis, of course, coming off very strong rates, and then the Aframaxis still look very strong. So interesting to yeah. see that. Um, Congratulations, first of all, on the, on the refinancing deal. Um, I know it's still a letter of intent. You, you haven't closed it yet, but it, but it's coming up. I, we've talked about this, what, for a year now, you know, about the, the next step and the next refinancing. So first of all, congrats on getting that done. Um, I guess that that gives you a question, though, right? Like, what's next in terms of capital allocation? Where, where do your priorities lie in terms of what you're going to do with the cash flow that's starting to surge in? Well, sure. Uh, Jay, if I take that... Um we we have been talking about it for a while, and it, it, it kind of kind of laid out the plan and are executing the plan. Um, once we knew that we had a good opportunity to sell our non-core uh, LNG joint venture interest last summer, we could see the path from there to deleveraging uh, to the level we are today, which is below 40% or actually 36% net loan to value, which we think is probably the low of, not probably, is the low of the tanker peers. And importantly, that opened the pathway to getting the refinancing done in a really efficient, low-cost uh, way. And, and so thanks for saying, uh, saying it. We're, we're really close to closing. We expect to, uh, to close before the end of the month. And besides saving interest costs by financing now at, at a lower rate of, of LIBOR plus 260 basis points, but probably declined uh, uh, by on a scheduled basis to live plus 240 basis points, it's going to save us $15 million a year of interest expense. But to your point, equally important, uh, this is a more flexible instrument that allows the company to have uh, the optionality to, to allocate capital uh, as it as appropriate. And as we've been talking about for a while, and you alluded to, uh, you know, having done the big $600 million Fleet renewal plus $50 million investment in scrubbers, you know, we've allocated a lot of capital to assets in the last couple of years at the down part of the cycle. Now that we're having this cash flow that we've been talking about the last few minutes from these high rates, you know, it's time to, to turn to allocating capital to, in, along with the leveraging, uh, returning cash to shareholders. So this, this refinancing should pave the way for that. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. Of course, when you look at your, and, and for folks who might have had the slides pulled up, of course, there'll be a recording posted later, and we'll, we'll try to put the slides into that into that article. Um, we're looking at slide 28, right? And it shows the new kind of uh, refinancing there. And, and what you also see, right, is you see that the total nominal level of debt also comes down a little bit. 
right? So there's a little bit, not a significant amount, but there's, it looks like there's going to be about what, about 40 million of debt that's prepaid down there as well. So you're seeing the savings right from the way lower margins, right? You're going from LIBOR plus 600 down to LIBOR plus 260, uh, but you're also paying back a little bit of debt and that's incremental, right? To the hundred million you already paid earlier. That's right. So overall, our cost of debt uh, part of our balance sheet goes from about 6.8% weighted cost to 4.8%. So that's 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 a big savings. We're really excited about that. Yeah. So as we look at you know slide 28 now that I've kind of warmed it up a little bit, there's an outlier on that slide 28 on the right side. Uh, there's these 25 million in senior notes at 8.5%, and uh, to our understanding, there's a call option that, that comes up on those, uh, I believe, as soon as later this year. Um, is that correct on the call option? And then secondly, uh, do you have any thoughts on that instrument? Yeah, well, as we discussed uh, in our investor day, we view a lot of what you see on the left-hand side of the page as, as acquisition financing. You know, the financing put in place to get this fleet renewal done without issuing equity. That was really important to Lois and me to not be issuing dilutive equity to, to grow uh, when the share price wasn't where, where we thought it should be. It was well below NAV. And the last, and all that's being taken out by this refinancing, uh, at, except, as you notice, the 8.5% senior notes. Now, those are unsecured notes. They're, they're retail bonds, so that often referred to as a baby bond, sold in $25 increments, uh, $25 par, just like preferred stock. Um, so really, it's, it's actually a pretty attractive price for unsecured. But the uh, to your point, uh, they were non-call for two years, and they are callable uh, on two-year anniversary, which will be middle of June of this year. So that's certainly an option at that point to leave it out as relatively inexpensive unsecured debt, or uh, to take it out at that time. And we'll we'll take you know we, we're actively managing everything. We're we're you know looking forward to this year and and deciding. Uh, what, through that lens of capital allocation, exactly what we're going to be doing, Jay. So that, that's always a possibility, as Jeff notes. Yeah, of course, you're not going to say exactly what you plan on doing, and, and I respect that. It is just interesting to see those notes. Um, they traded a premium right uh, to the par value, and it's like, well, you know, there's a there's a call option out there. So just an interesting market dynamic uh, you see coming out there. And, you know, one of the things is you, you, you bring up a great point, right? They're unsecured bonds. Right there, there's it's a nice flexibility to the balance sheet, um, but with interest rates declining across the board, right? With tanker earnings improving across the board, uh, with your credit profile drastically improved, uh, I would think. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a banker right now, but I would think the actual market rate for something like an unsecured bond from International Seaways would maybe be closer to seven, seven and a half, somewhere in there. Um, so if it was possible, right, to do a maybe a maybe even upsize it, you know, maybe even do 50 million, um, you know, at seven and a half and, and get rid of those eight and a half, uh, that would be interesting. So so we'll see what happens. Uh, it's definitely something we're looking at. But overall, uh, very happy uh, to see you take those out. Let's uh, let's pivot a little bit. You, you mentioned dividends and, and capital returns as a potential. Um, how do you think about share repurchases in this current environment? And also, how do you think about dividends? Like, what's kind of the pivot between the two? Well. You- you correctly identified that there are sort of two sides of the same capital allocation coin, right? So, you know, there's only a few things that a company can do with, with the excess cash it generates and happy to be in a market where we're generating cash. You know, it, 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 it's a good feeling. Uh, you can, you can buy assets. Uh, but as, as we've said, 
you know, we think the right time to buy assets at the bottom, and we did that, and, and assets are up. So, so while we will buy assets here and there tactically, um, and we just closed one of those the other day, you know, a big acquisition for cash is not as not nearly as likely for us right now. Um, and so, you, you, the, the next thing that makes a lot of sense is deleveraging, and we've done a bunch of that, and as you noted, even a little more with this refinancing. So then, if you sort of, if you if buying a lot of assets isn't the right thing to do from a return basis and you've delevered, uh, do, we, do we need to build up cash? No, we think we have a good good level of cash as we've disclosed, so we're very comfortable with the cash cushion on the balance sheet. So then returning cash to shareholders is what makes sense. And whether it, it's a, a, a share buyback, which is good if your shares are trading low because then it's out of corporate finance basis, it's accretive, it increases your EPS per share, your NAV per share, that's nice, but it obviously only benefits that particular shareholder who chose to sell into the share of purchase. The dividend, uh, you know, benefits but every shareholder because it's generally it's, it goes to everybody. Uh, so th- th- those are which one you pick really is going to depend on on how the shares are trading. So if you're well below NAV, you look at look at share of purchase. But if you're as we are today, kind of near to NAV, or if we could be above NAV. You know, then I think you would would shy away a little bit from the share repurchase and and, and a lead more on dividend. But Lois and I feel it's important to have both tools in the toolkit so they can respond to where the market is. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so a nice answer with lots of details, but not a lot of clarity yet. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll have to circle back to it and, and see where we're at. I mean, it's just... Oh. You know, well, don't circle back. We'll let you know. Yeah, Jay, I, I, and I, and uh, for 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 you and everyone listening, I, I mean, uh, I thought you were mostly asking about our our uh, theoretical how we look at share repurchases versus dividend, and so talking about that. But but you know, as 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 if people listen to our transcript of our investor day or read the transcript to listen to it, uh, we we said clearly that the uh, term loan B in particular and the and the, that the other senior note that we're taking out in this refinancing have significant restrictions on dividends. That, that was the way they worked. Uh, one of the great things about taking them out is they don't, but until they're out, it, we really can't make an announcement about dividends. But you see where, if I can put it this way, you can see where our head's at. You know, we're, we're thinking, you know, once we have the path paved uh, and we close the deal, you know, we, 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 we uh, are, are pivoting towards returning cash to shareholders, which will either be share or purchase or dividends. And as well as said, stay tuned, more to come. All right, excellent. Yeah, I think that the additional clarity after <laughs> the uh, circling back, I think that's very good, right? To see that you're taking out that that facility in, in mid February, right? And that old Feb- that old facility was very restrictive. So, and, and so not only are you saving significant amounts of money and in the interest, you're also saving a lot of money, um, right? Or excuse me, you're also freeing up your options, right, to pay out dividends or, or whatnot. Um, I think also Absolutely. those those things stack, and I, and I think you've you've done a great job of disclosing each time you do a transaction how much savings you have to earnings, uh, but they're not really stacked up, you know, in one slide. So there's like three different impacts, right? There's the hundred million that came down, which just saves you a lot of money on on future yep. uh, interest payments. Then of course there's about thirty to forty million. Of, of prepayments included in this refinancing, which of course obviously saves interest costs. And then thirdly, the most important is that the margin on the debt came down. So the stack is is pretty big there in terms of uh, earnings per share. So pivoting now, I think we talked about a capital allocation in a good way and we're looking forward uh, to hearing some of that. Um, I know a lot of times you don't have an exact number on NAV or, or want to disclose that, uh, but in terms of a range, 
Um, how do you feel about the company right now in, in the sort of high 20s? Are we are we well mm-hmm. underneath an AV, a little bit below, in the right zone, above? What, what do you see in terms of uh, current price to an AV, just in a broad range? Not doesn't need to be like to the dollar, to the cent or anything. I mean, I, I guess what I would say is that, you know, when you look at the uh, range of analysts that are covering us, you know, you're, you're looking, uh, you know, in, you know, it has a three in front of it, you know, you know, so the low side would be uh, low 30s or 30, and then the upper side would be, you know, approaching, you know, 34, something like that. So that's, that's really kind of where the analysts are at. So, uh, we, we were very close. Uh, there, there's been a little bit of, I would say, risk off in the market at the moment, but I'm, I'm assuming that now that the China, the stage one China deal is signed and you see that $50 billion are supposed to be bought by China. I don't know how they're going to achieve that between natural gas and crude. Um, we love that. Uh, India came out yesterday and said that they're going to attempt to double their purchases from the United States. You know, that's from about 250,000 barrels a day. So, that's a 40-day trip, so ballast from China to the Gulf and load to India, we love that. So, um, you know, we're, we're thinking that this is probably a buying opportunity for people. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think so myself. And in, in fact, the uh, the pullback after it, the funny thing was the pullback after you put out the earnings and reason, well, not the earnings, but I think the earnings might change yeah, some things. Yeah. But you put out the yeah. rates. Right. And, and yeah. I think you put up the rates and, and I think there's just this unrealistic. Well, two things. First of all, it's kind of like bad luck because your investor day was literally on that, like <laughs> the weird like Twitter apocalypse of tankers or whatever it was um, where, you know, there was like two fixtures that came out and everyone's heads heads fell off or something. Um, so that was kind of just bad timing on that. I think a lot of momentum names kind of hit the exit. And then secondly, I think there was some maybe false expectations uh, for certain routes. I think the Aframax routes were just the benchmark rate that was getting quoted on like Bloomberg and stuff was just not representative of the overall market, right? So so you had folks' expectations way too high. And then at the same time, you had, you know, that VLCC drop, which, which of course, when you look at the uh, all 13 fixtures that happened on Wednesday, right, it was not much of a drop. And then you look at today's fixtures and their per- Thursday's fixtures and Friday's fixtures, they're pretty good. But I think that's that wasn't what the market uh, looked at initially. So um, since you mentioned analysts have NAV, and, and just because I know folks on the call today, Value Investors Edge, uh, have this data. Uh, but just in case, you know, we post this later, it's a podcast or anything like that. Um, I currently have your NAV uh, trailing. I do trailing. So this is like as of October, right? Um, I have it at $30.50. Uh, $30. And that just depends on how you value the FSO joint venture. I use $100 million for that. I think that's actually pretty conservative. Uh, but I know a lot of analysts don't uh, give a lot of credit for that joint venture. And then if you include, of course, some scrubber premiums, you include the cash flows that you've generated in October, November, December, and half of January, um, we're in the 33, 34 type range eventually. So very interesting stuff. And I think a very uh, good dynamic to, for folks to buy maybe yesterday. Of course, I'm heavily talking my book. I'm long seaways. So <laughs> just, <laughs> just so we're being, uh, just so we're good on our disclosures there. Um, going forward into 2020, I, I think I think it's important to look at the risk factors, right? Because we, we get very optimistic. We get very euphoric. I blabber on for three minutes of a high level tankers. Uh, Help us out, Lois and Jeff. What are some of the risk factors do you see in the market going forward? What should we be looking out for? Well, oh, go ahead, Jeff. You know, one one thing that came up in a number of uh, investor meetings this week that maybe would be good for the VIE listeners to hear, uh, sort of the inside, one of the institution thinking, you know, there, there, there is a little concern about 
one of the Costco ships that were um, added to the sanction list or, or, or sanctioned as part of the broader Iranian sanctions uh, come back in the market. And and I think basically the prospect that 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 they're going to come back in the market is in the prices. I think that's part of of what was going on this week was not just about rates and things like that, but part of it was, ooh, there's a a trade deal and and maybe uh, if I am China, I'm going to you know really want to get those Costco ships be able to move again. Well, two things. One is that could happen, but it's going to take a while because it was a, it was a Treasury Department sanction, you know, on, based on technical matters. It wasn't just a high-level Twitter sanction, right? So, and, and so there's a process. But the second thing is, I think, as well as I were talking about with a couple of investors this week, we'll take that trade. Let those ships come back in. Mm-hmm. And, and because what we're getting is this export to China that Lois just mentioned. You know, they China was in the market taking a lot of imports from, uh, to them as exports from the U.S., and then they stopped, you know, obviously because there's a, a trade war going on. Uh, and now that's cooling off. And in particular, there's a requirement to, or agreement to take energy from the U.S. So we're going to see VLCCs going from the U.S. to China. And I think that is a stronger positive than the negative of, of, of Costco ships maybe coming back on at some point this year. The other worry, because I, I like to think that um, the, the uh, stock market is, is, is looking at a lot of factors, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure they are. And I think one of the things that didn't happen that people thought would happen is that refinery margins on particularly diesel gas oil would, would have run up and that didn't really happen. And uh, we, we were getting some good intelligence uh, yesterday afternoon. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense to me that uh, a, a lot of that will happen, but it hasn't happened yet because uh, the, uh, the whole market, all the traders, the refiners, everybody had uh, a lot of time to prepare for January 1st. And so you have a lot of LSFO that is in kind of in storage or, you know, being handled on these uh, VLCCs off of Singapore. And as we start to draw from there, uh, we, we will see the logistical chain have to respond more in the moment. And when that happens, um, there's a belief that the refinery margins will pop here in um, maybe late first quarter. And I think that we should uh, look for that because uh, the danger is you get uh, pessimistic and you miss that next upturn that's coming. Yeah, it's it's good to focus on the risk and not to overdo it, of course, but also to have an open mind to things. And of course, you mentioned the Costco sanctions, but of course, offsetting those by the hope, right, that any sort of phase one and maybe even a phase two U.S.-China trade deal would, would involve a lot of trade, right? A lot of U.S. exports to China, which we know is, is double the demand, right, from uh, the Middle East Gulf over to China. Um, but let's, I, and I don't know if you have the, the granular uh, analytics in front of you. I know this is more of a kind of a, maybe a chartering focused question, but um, what do you think is going on right now with Chinese imports, right? Because it's not like China's going to consume a lot more oil. I mean, it's growing, but it's not going to grow drastically, right? It's, it's a sourcing problem. So maybe they're going to source a little bit less from the Middle East, but how do you, how do you view like, cause the U.S. already exports, right? To South Korea and some of those regions. Correct. So is that going to be, you think incremental, completely new flows, or do you think most of that's maybe going to get diverted? So, so looking at, you know, looking exactly at the numbers, you know, where did we end up with uh, out of the U.S. Gulf uh, crude exports at the end of the year? We probably didn't touch 3 million barrels a day for the whole average for the year, maybe like 2.8, something like that. 
very end of the year, you were, you know, one week had 4.4 million barrels a day, which uh, I, I loved. But, you know, for sustainably, you're probably um, expecting somewhere around 3.3 here in the beginning of the year. So what am I getting at? You have incrementally more crude coming out of the U.S. Gulf. Everybody's uh, trying to leave shale for dead. EAI came out yesterday, said up uh, a million point one barrels a day in production this year. And you can expect for the U.S. Gulf to keep increasing our exports. So, you know, when you're when you're talking a uh, U.S. Uh, very light crude, as we know, under high demand. So you're looking incrementally for more barrels going long. You're certainly seeing uh, those Brazilian barrels going uh, long. And when you talk, uh, Jay, about uh, China increasing, in, between China and India, they equal half of the 1.1 of the uh, oil demand increase expected, uh, 1.1, 1.2 for 2020. So that, that to me is all long haul, west to east, and, and uh, constructive, constructive for ton miles. Yes, I'm always that's something uh, I've heard you say before. Uh, the with with China having withdrawn from the market, the U.S. market, and importing from the U.S., uh, where some of the uh, of that went on long haul to Korea uh, and other Asian destinations. There's been a lot of U.S. export mm-hmm. that's gone to other ships, uh, Suez Max, Aframax, et cetera, to non-Asian destinations, mm-hmm. which. It's actually fine with us because we own ships in all those categories. Correct. But, but the expectation, Jay, is that with with the, the uh, trade pact coming together, you're, you're going to see some of those middle sized ships get displaced by. We're just going to need more VLCCs to go east. Uh, that's the likely thing that's going to happen. Is it is a ton mile impact. You know what, Jeff, and you know one thing that uh, you know really looking at as we look at the market dynamics. The very low sulfur fuel oil that's uh, off of Singapore, a lot of it's a straight run or even a super light crude or uh, different types of blends. And, and where is that coming from? That's coming from Africa. That's coming from the Mediterranean. So as we draw that down, some of that has to be replenished. Yeah. And, and that's going to be another trade flow that's a direct uh, add-on to the um, IMO 2020. Yeah, definitely, definitely something to look at. And, and I know there's been a lot of debate about what exactly is going to happen with those trade flows. But as you mentioned, and I, we've been covering this for the past year, of course, is all, pretty much all of the demand growth, not all of it, but the majority, it's like 80% of the demand growth is, of course, east of the Suez, right in Asia, and yeah. almost all of the supply growth. In fact, in, in certain periods of the market, uh, depending on what OPEC does, sometimes it's more than 100%. Of the, of the supply growth, right? Because OPEC might go down. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of the supply growth yeah. is west of the Suez, right? So, it, you know, we can look into the nuances sometimes and, and bend ourselves around the axle, but I mean, it's got, the oil's got to go somewhere, right? So it, it's almost, you know, interesting that the OPEC dynamic is just completely flipped on its head, right? Because in the 90s and 2000s, we could judge the strength of a tanker market by the stems in the MEG, right? By how many ships we're going to load in the Middle East to go to basically the United States at some points, and then Asia. Now it's flipped on its head. It's like the less that OPEC exports over the next three, four, five, six years is bullish for tankers, right? I mean, it's just a weird a dynamic. Am I, am I summarizing yeah. that correctly? Or? Yes, I agree. Of course, for us, uh, the more oil on the water, the better. But if you're going to have uh, production increase over 2 million barrels a day and demand increase 1.2, Okay, uh, I think the, the uh, good thing out of there is to have it come from as long as distance as possible. 
And the second thing there is, uh, you know, you're looking at now everyone's putting out their forecast for 2020 on oil prices. Of course, the forward curve is in backwardation slight, right? And, you know, having a $64 Brent is, I think, uh, an okay spot because we certainly don't want, you know, it would have been, I think, very bad for the world economy. You know, I, I hate to overstate, but if all of a sudden IMO 2020 catapulted us into a very high oil cost environment because that would um, have repercussions in emerging markets, and then all of a sudden you see demand go down. So it seems to me we're in in uh, the little bit of the Goldilocks spot there, and 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 I think uh, everything looks kind of balanced. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't want to see like this oil Armageddon. And I, I don't think anybody, I don't want to say anybody credible wasn't saying that because that's a, maybe a little overstatement, but I don't, I don't think it was seriously, I don't think people actually believe that, that IMO 2020 would cause like an oil apocalypse, right? And, um, but there's also some folks saying we wouldn't see the spreads would be tiny and they were looking at the futures curve. And then of course we came into December or January and the spreads were pretty significant, right? It was, it was very profitable. Yep to have a scrubber installed. So with that, let's just clarify for everyone, and, and what's your current status of your scrubber program? I know you deferred a few of them last quarter. Are those back in the shipyards? Or are you still waiting on those? And so I guess what's the total number of scrubbers installed and yet to be installed? Right, so we have the Seaways McKinley has, uh, is, is en route to the AG with her uh, working scrubber installed. And then we have an additional four VLCCs that will be uh, completed with their scrubbers uh, ready to go before uh, Feb 20. So uh, two of them at the end of the month here and, and the other two in, in uh, early Feb. And then the next batch of five will be in March and April. Yeah, that's how we we schedule it after, as you said, it was clearly seemed to us uh, the right thing to postpone some of them that would otherwise have gone into November with that really robust market we pushed to Q2. So the, the, the revised plan became a wave of five in Q1, which as Lois said, would be done by mid-February and five uh, in Q2. And uh, so far, the, the execution on the installation and testing of those has been great. Good to, good to hear that those have been great, and I know you deferred those, and it seems like you're back in the yards now, as you've mentioned, uh, scheduled for that. Uh, slightly uh, a bit of a drag, not a drag, I guess, but slightly less earnings, of course, for Q1 because of those scrubber off hires, yeah. but uh, but it was better, yeah. of course, than doing it in Q4. Um, so have you looked into the potential for doing any additional scrubbers uh, later on in the year, or are you just sticking with your current program? First of all, it's just for, your, for International Seaways, and then secondly, have you heard anything in the markets in the industry about a potential second wave? Of scrubbers you know it's the putting on these scrubbers uh is is a big effort it, it is uh, a lot of engineering a lot of planning a lot of uh, delivery of systems all coming together we just want to execute this program smoothly and effectively and we have not signed up for any additionals so that's kind of where where we're at i i think a lot of the people who are uh doing even bigger programs than us are, are in that similar digestion type place so, yeah, I think we'll look for a little more data too. You know, it, it right now it's going as we hoped, right? The spread, <laughs> the spread is there. The payback looks like it's there. But if you say, oh, okay, uh, do good for first wave of investment, we're going to get a nice payback. It's going to be good for a share price, et cetera. Should we take on a second wave that's going to really, really be heavily weighted toward 2021 and beyond? I think we'll we'll wait for a little data to shape up, but everything from the regulatory environment, will they be 
encouraging us owners to put more scrubbers on or discouraging us uh, you know, the, the, to the, the, the fuel spreads in the marketplace are all factors that we'll, we'll need to say play out. It's only mid-January, you know, Jay, so we just got into this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's still early in the season, of course, right? It, as you mentioned, it's two weeks into 2020, and then it's about maybe two months or so into the actual dynamics of, of the spreads. Um, on, on slide 26, you, you mentioned some of your CapEx needs for 2020. You, you're 30 million in dry docks, regular dry docks, of course, uh, 15 million in, in ballast water treatment systems to comply with that regulation, and then 25 million uh, scrubber costs, which are the vessels we just talked about. Um, do you plan on financing all of that CapEx? I, I think it's 70 million in total. Is that all just from cash on hand and cash from operations, or is there going to be any sort of financing related to the scrubbers? Nope, that's cash on hand and cash from operations. It certainly makes sense. That's what we were expecting, just cleaning up that item there. And it looks like you're definitely going to have a, a significant uh, surplus in cash if, right, it's always an if, uh, those rates stay strong. So definitely definitely looking uh, positive at this point. Um, is there, we, we talked about risk in the market, right? And we, we mentioned the Costco sanctions being one of them. Um, in terms of anything else out there that investors should look at, I know I'm really trying hard on this one. We're just trying to get a little bit of alternate uh, alternate takes. Well, definitely, the uh, I, I feel more robust now than I felt six months ago. Why? Economically, it was looking a little bit, uh, a lot, lot of shakiness uh, in, in uh, maybe the middle of last year before the Fed lowered their interest rates. And, of course, when you look back at 2019, oil demand did not increase as much as we anticipated. And I, I feel, like I said, more positive about the fact that kind of early intervention what was taken there, and, and you see a little bit more of a, a rosy economic outlook. We are going into an election year. It, it, that, that is definitely uh, more rare to see uh, a weak growth or a recession in an election year. So um, I, I would say, you know, obviously we're a derivative of economic growth, but we feel a lot more uh, robust about that than what we did six months ago. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the U.S. Uh, presidential election transpires. Of course, it's I don't know if it's going to impact shipping as much, but it's definitely uh, impacting energy stocks in, in a significant way in our in our stock markets here domestically, uh, just because of, you know, one platform is, of course, very anti-energy in many ways. So it uh, when you look at energy stocks, you see a significant valuation uh, applied to all of them, just because I think a lot of the political uncertainty, global warming uncertainty, and so on, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that translates to shipping. It seems to me that shipping definitely has a cloud hanging over it, right? There's a, there's a very negative sentiment. Um, folks don't believe the strong rates. They think they're only here for a few weeks and, uh, we're hoping to, we're hoping we can break through that and keep going. Um, question again on, on your kind of market positioning, you know, if you look at slide 32 for folks, you can see your Q1 fixtures, of course, and you see the spot and you see the fixed and of course when you when you go down that line and you see the same percent fix as the same for time charters obviously that means you don't have any time charters right so there's there's no time charters in DLs, there's no time charters in suez maxes there's there's very few time charters in Affirmaxes. there's yep. zero time charters in mr you know you get the point there's not a lot of time charters yep. so how do you think about that time charter market like at what point do you say okay rates are really good i want to take a little bit of cover here and uh, and what sort of stuff are you looking for well, definitely, I think the uh, the work that Jeff and his team have done to uh, establish lower leverage gives you more confidence to have higher operating leverage. And, you know, we say $5,000 a day equals annualized equals $72 million in EBITDA rolling to the bottom line. So 
because we have the lower leverage and we've been uh, maintaining that liquidity throughout the downturn, we were able to stay spot. While you want to stay spot, the worst thing you want to do is take a time charter before the market moves. So as the market strengthens, moves into itself, and if you can do uh, a, a little bit longer time charter, that will have more appeal to us than fixing a one-year time charter on a VLCC at 60 a day when, when the market, spot market, um, you put four trips together, you did a year, and you did it at 70. So that's kind of our view is, you know, once as the market moves into itself, we will look to take some cover, but we don't want to do that prematurely. Yeah, definitely. Since you're looking at the different volumes and, and of course, the, the bid ask spread in time charters. I mean, we, t- we talked to multiple companies just the last two weeks. You know, we had DHT on, we had Euronav on uh, Frontline, right? And, and the spreads between, you know, what the owners expect based on the strength of the market and what charters are willing to lock up for one or two years, the massive spreads, right? So what sort of levels would make sense to you in terms of, I know one year, right? You're looking for a very strong number, but in terms of three years or five years, what sort of number is, is, is a point where, okay, that makes sense. Are we, are we talking 40,000, 50,000? What, what sort of range on those? Can I say something, Lois? It's really, I know it's your area, but, uh, uh, I've been doing this a long time, Jay. And, uh, you know, as a financial guy, I'd say, I really would hate for my commercial people to t- say on a on a on a publicly disclosed line where they want to hit the bid, right? So that's <laughs> that's where we create a lot of alpha here. Is that Lois and her team are are, are going to negotiate with with the other side and and uh, strike a good deal if a deal is to be had at the right point in time. But I don't guess we could tell them ahead of time so they could could read your transcript to know know how to. Not a, where we'll, we'll transact, you know? So I think Jeff took care of that question. But the, the other part of that is that all of a sudden uh, we're starting to see there's a second vessel that we understand to be under potentially under contract for MOA, not at 106, but at 106 and a half. You're starting to move it up. And all of a sudden you're, you're seeing a coming together of the minds between the owners and, and um, even other owner buyers, right? So uh, that momentum is something that we're looking closely at, not from a sales perspective, but just what does that reflect all through the chain and mean in time charter values in um, the sentiment in the marketplace in net and NAVs as it cascades through your whole fleet. Yeah, you, you caught me there asking for too much information. We had a uh, <laughs> we had some we had some sneaky charters on the line. I my buddy from Trafficker, I got on the line here and wanted to, mm. wanted to ask that I, one. No, <laughs> we don't mind you trying. It's okay. Yeah, he's calling Derek now, and they're like my commercial officer on the other line. Right? <laughs> yeah. You got to watch out for that. But no, I mean it's it, it is you have a point in the terms that you don't want to say exactly what you're willing to accept, and that's that's understandable. But at the other hand, I think investors look to those time charters as being an actual right sustainable rate right and until we see those fixtures start moving upward uh you know the market's going to be remain skeptical right and we just have not seen a lot of we've seen a few one-year fixtures but we haven't seen really any two-year or three-year fixtures in the last months right so i I think that's that's kind of where that question's coming from in terms of you know investors have a little bit of angst of like well you know are we going to start seeing this stuff for the long term so what i guess i i should ask you maybe a better question would be what is sort of the bid Right. Like what are the charters currently offering? It's, it's clearly not good enough because you haven't accepted it. But what are they offering for, say, a two year or three year charter? Well, what I would say, actually, Jay, is if you, you know, there hasn't been a tremendous amount done uh, over the last 60 days. But go back and, and realize that everybody was was uh, having a 
heart palpitations and, uh, you know, at the end of the year when the market went to 150 a day, and I think people were pretty busy scrambling around. But if you really look at the charters and the position that they have taken over the last, say, six to nine months, there has been actually a healthy amount of three to five-year time charters taken often with vessel, vessels with scrubbers for uh, pretty healthy rates, right? So um, my understanding is that there there may be um, some deals being done uh, in the, in the mid 40s at, at this juncture for uh, a multi year period. Yeah, and Jay, just to give a, a, another context on it, it, when you you're getting there now, you're getting to what is kind of there being those rates that Lois just said. Those are around the multi year, you know, mid cycle averages, right? And so uh, as you get there and above, then it gets a little interesting, right? Uh, so doing three long-term time charters at rates that are below the means when you have a low leverage balance like we are, and, and the, below the historical mean when you're at a low leverage right. balance like we are, it doesn't kind of seem like a winning strategy, but, but you start to take a closer look when you get above the long-term historical averages. Yeah, well, we'll have to see how those transpire. And I think uh, we'll see a lot more investor enthusiasm when there are a lot of ra- a raft of fixtures, right? If we see, you know, there's a couple weeks where, you know, maybe there's 10 or 20 time charters, right, that are fixed at two or three year levels, um, even if they're even if they're lower, like you mentioned, uh, you know, 40s and 50s and stuff like that, you, you know, that might seem lower to spot. But it's just amazing to have 100% utilization for three years at something like forty-five or fifty thousand dollars a day, right? The economics on that are, are significant. So hopefully we'll we'll see some of that in the market. Obviously you'll continue to have a balanced approach, and that's you know as investors we would expect uh, nothing less than that. Well, let's pivot to end our call here. I think one one thing we can discuss is something I think analysts just do not, and I'm I guess I consider myself an analyst and researcher as well, but I, I don't think the market gives you proper credit for your FSO joint venture. Ah. So we we talked with Euronav about that a few. Days ago, so we already got some basic color on it, right? Euronav is hoping um, that those charters are, will be uh, redone in 2022, and uh, those will extend up to 2032. So 2032, so we got 12 more years of life on it, right? Potentially, um, but the 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 street doesn't seem to place any value on it. So how do you how do you personally look at it? Do you use book value or do you use some sort of discounted cash flow model when when thinking about valuations internally? We internally have been using a book value. I think we're around 135 million right now that uh, that we have disclosed in some of our investor materials. And so, so that's one perspective on it. Um, obviously, you, you got some good insight from Euronav. One thing I would just say is that yeah, the vessels are fully contracted through 2022. So if we extend, that would be for 10 additional years. And uh, remember that in uh, 2019, uh, we took 18 million in cash out of the FSO. In addition to, uh, in 2019, um, we took 18 million in cash out of it. And then in 2018, after we ex- executed the contract that we were on, we took 110 million dollars in cash out of the F- FSO. So um, I, I, I think uh, that is something with a little bit of, of patience from investors. Uh, I, I think that uh, similar to the way that the LNG was undervalued, uh, watch the space. Yeah, certainly. And of course, that book value, you know, might make sense for the current contract, right, until until 2022. But if you get a 10-year extension at that point, um, significant cash flow generation potential on the tail end. So it, it's it's almost like a sort of optionality. And, and of course, if, you know, I, I use 100 million in my personal numbers, and I'm, I think I'm 
probably the highest out there in terms of what I put into that. But if I even just raise you up to book value, that adds an entire dollar right to your NAV. And if we get yep. a contract extension, um, you could get up to the two or $300 million valuation, which of course adds five, six, $7 uh, per share. So this is significant uh, upside leverage that I don't think the market's appreciating. Um, do you have any sort of views on, on that joint venture long-term? I mean, because I know the LNG joint venture, it was not core, right? And you sold it off for a very good price. Um, is this FSO joint venture completely core or are you open to some sort of value maximizing transaction, say selling it to your partner or finding someone else with a lower cost of capital to take that spot? So everything is uh, step by step so that we can actually execute it and not stumble over ourselves. Uh, and But what I would say is that we do not consider it to be the core in the sense that we are not expecting ourselves to take on more uh, conversion projects. And uh, that is a very important project, and it's critical for that to be run safely, properly. We've had zero off hire since 2010, and uh, you know, so it is something that we value uh, on on our balance sheet, and and then we will look to maximize it as we go forward. Yeah, keep it keeping all the options open. You're not going to expand right that joint venture, but for now, that that uh, 50% ownership of those two FSOs is is of course very important uh, to the core business and core cash flows at this point. Uh, we definitely we definitely hope to see uh, some sort of uh, value maximizing transaction in the future. Whether or not that might just be a new contract, right? That could be a new contract and then a new refinancing at the joint venture, and you just pull a lot of cash out, right? That would be value maximizing as well. Absolutely right. So the, the the first step is is clearly to work in, in tandem with our partner toward an extension. So we're, we're reaching the end of our time. I do have one uh, final co uh, question that was submitted to us um, asking a little bit about the product markets. So you have a, a decent uh, handle on that with your MR uh, ships in the market. Um, can you talk a little bit to kind of the resilience, I suppose, we see in the MRs versus, say, the uh, LR2s and LR1s? Yes, absolutely. The uh, MR market, it's interesting. The U.S. Gulf is the uh, largest uh, export uh, loading area in the world for MRs. And, uh, you know, now what you're seeing, the growth is actually coming from the east. And as China has brought on all of these refineries and they're running them full out, they're exporting a lot of barrels and a lot of that is, is going on MR. So you're, so you're actually seeing uh, – healthy growth coming from the east, and that's giving uh, opportunity, fresh opportunity for those of us here in the Atlantic Basin. You're seeing a lot of MRs having to go to dry dock, and normally you're doing that in China. So that's leaving the, the Western Hemisphere in, in a quite constructive place. Yeah, it certainly seems to be that the strength there has been a little bit longer standing. It wasn't an extreme, you know, spike or anything in rates, but the rates have been very, very good, right in the in the mid twenties at points. And of course, they've been more steady than the other classes. Thanks for the thanks for the color on that. All right, thank you again, Jeff and Lois. I think we had a great call today. I appreciate your time and that flexibility on the schedule today. Thank you very much, and for all the listeners, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Thanks to everyone for joining us for our final event of our live Tanker and IMO 2020 Virtual Investor Forum. We've had uh, 13 events over the last two weeks, so appreciate everyone joining us. As a disclosure, I am long shares in international seaways. This recording took place on the morning of 17 January 2020. So if you're listening to a recording at a later date, keep in mind those disclosures might have changed. Nothing you heard on the call today constitutes investment advice or company guidance in any form. 